You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the uh, book of Acts, chapter 2. Be looking at verses 1 through 13. Thanks, Jen. Acts chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Uh, It's good to be with you. Uh, If you're visiting with us and you don't have uh, a Bible with you, uh, there's a black hardcover Bible under the seat in front of you or under the seat that you're sitting on. And uh, the text we're looking at is on page 855. Starts there, I think goes through 856. And again, if you're here and you don't have a Bible of your own and you want to take that black Bible home with you as our gift to you, please do so. Thanks to some of our members who stepped up and purchased those for that very reason. Um, I'm I'm stoked to dive into Acts 2 with you. Uh, So, uh, without further ado, let's look at the text. It's Acts chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 1, read through verse 13. Follow along with me. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tons as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own language, or our own tongues, sorry, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. We're grateful um, that we're able to sit here in relative peace and comfort, study your word, hear it preached, Lord, what we need the most this morning is for you to come and speak to us. We ask that your spirit would come. And Lord, not just fill this space around us, but fill the space within us. Lord, help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. This passage that uh, we just read is all about the day of Pentecost. Now, the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts um, has been described as a day that was basically full of fireworks, very much like our 4th of July celebration. So, I don't know how many of you guys enjoy fireworks on the 4th of July. I do. Really enjoy fireworks. And uh, and in fact, uh, I'm sure most of you in the room have probably experienced my friend Dave Zock's fireworks show. Uh, if you don't know who Dave Zock is or you have not experienced his fireworks show, I want to witness to you this morning 
that uh, it is hands down best fireworks show you will ever see. And uh, so, uh, and when we draw close to the 4th of July, you, you ought to pay attention to those announcements when they come up. And I, I would invite you to come and gather. I think there's over a thousand people that gather out at his place now for that show. Um, Dave, uh, my friend, is, how should I say it? Well, he loves to blow stuff up. That's, that's the best way to say it. Uh, the entire 45-minute long show is like the five-minute finale that you'll see at most of your firework shows. It's phenomenal. It will leave you breathless and uh, and wanting more. That is very much how commentators describe the day of Pentecost. Very much like that. Um, As a day, um, the day of Pentecost, uh, it, it had historically been full of significance. And then, uh, it, and for all of history up until this point, uh, the, the nation of Israel had anticipated the, the promises of God being fulfilled. Now, that's what this day was all about, historical significance, as well as anticipation of God's promises being fulfilled. I want you to think with me for a minute about the historical significance of Pentecost. I want to take us on a little bit of a, a journey before we focus on the text so that we um, can rightly interpret what God is saying to us. Uh, Historically speaking, the the, the day of Pentecost was um, the most attended holiday celebration on the Jewish calendar. That's significant and important to think about. It was the most attended holiday celebration on the Jewish calendar. If you're going to make the leap from that culture to our culture, you might say for us it would be a lot like Easter or Christmas. Uh, Easter and Christmas are typically your most attended church functions on the calendar uh, throughout the year. That's what the day of Pentecost was for the Israelites, historically speaking. Uh, It was celebrated uh, literally exactly 50 days after um, Passover. Uh, Passover has a direct connection to the cross, right? Um, As they celebrated the Passover all that time, what they were indeed celebrating was of this sacrificial lamb who was going to be slaughtered for the sins of mankind. Um, That's probably the easiest way to put it. So it was celebrated exactly 50 days after the Passover. Um, And the name Pentecost literally uh, means 50. Um, It was also, here's something else that's very significant about this historical holiday, uh, it was celebrated at a time when all of the harvest in all of the fields were, were beginning to take place. So they were, they were just starting their harvest. And as they were beginning the harvest, part of that Pentecost celebration was an anticipation of the full harvest that was going to come down the road. So you think of beginning the harvest, you don't know how good the fields look, and you don't know what the yield is going to be. You don't know those things on the front edge. But as you get done with harvest, as the full harvest gets completed, you look and you see all the grain in the bins and so on and so forth. That's the, the anticipation that was felt. That was what was taking place on the day of Pentecost, this kind of a celebration. Um, you can study some of this out. Uh, I don't have this on the screen, so you'd have to follow along real quickly with me or look at my notes when they come out this week. You can study some of this out in Exodus 23 and Exodus 34. Uh, you can look to Deuteronomy 16, 2 Chronicles 8, Leviticus 23. 
I rattled those off quick, but those are places you would go to get some of this historical significance. And I don't want you to miss it. So I kind of want to repeat myself maybe in a different way again. I want you to catch the significance of this holiday. Remember, it drew the largest attendance of all the Jewish holidays. People from all over the known world would attend this annual celebration. Again, after the Passover, that's in the rear view. Um, Passover's just happened. Now they're looking forward to a massive harvest in the fields. Okay, That's the significance. And in Acts chapter 2, as we turn to look at that here in a few moments, the anticipation of the harvest has to do with the harvest of souls that's going to take place throughout the book of Acts, and especially in chapter 2 here, we're going to see thousands of people come to Jesus because of what takes place on this day. As the disciples are witnessing to the power of the Spirit, or through the power of the Spirit to the person, the work of Jesus, the cross, the empty tomb, the promise of eternal life, thousands are going to be added to the church. That's the spiritual harvest that's going to take place. So there's some of the significance of this holiday as we look at it, okay? Second thing I want you to look at, just think about for a minute, is the fulfillment of all of these centuries of promises from God. And we could spend a lot of time just diving into, I just want to give you a bit of a treetop overview of the centuries of promises from God. Acts chapter 2, um, as, you, as you look at it, as you look at some of the references in the background historically, um, God's promises to his people historically could be summed up um, in a very broad category. Uh, but but the summarize, the, to, to summarize God's promises would be this. God, from the very beginning of time until now to the end of time, has promised his very own redemptive presence, not just with, but in his people. Okay? So I think what I said is very significant. Uh, God had promised from the very beginning to be present not just with, but also in his people. And it's his redemptive presence. All throughout the Old Testament, this was God's promise, to be with his people in a redemptive and empowering way, right? And if, God, 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 God always comes through on his promises. And so when you do the historical research, when you read through the Old Testament and even then through the Gospels up until now, that's what, that's what you're meant to see, is God promising this and then coming through on that promise every time. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. His promise then to Adam and Eve basically is, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to crush the serpent's head one day. That's the promise. He was with them in the Exodus out of Egypt, when you move forward in the historical timeline. He was with them as they wandered around in the wilderness. Pillar of fire by night, cloud by day, right? Smoke, pillar of smoke, pillar of fire. He was with them in the wilderness. He was with them in the exile, when they were exiled and living in slavery to other massive nations. He was with them. He never left their side. Uh, he was with them in the Gospels, in the, in the person and work of Jesus, right? Uh, the name for Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Time and time and time again, what God had proven is that he's a promise-keeping God, and when he says, I will be with you, we can bank on it. 
You might remember at the end of the Gospels, if, if you've read the account, as he gives the great commission to the disciples, it's all power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And oh, I will be with you until the end of the age. It's a promise. I will be with you. And then you jump into Acts 1.8 previously. Now the promise shifts. The promise shifts not just with, but in. He's going to be in us through the indwelling presence of his very own spirit. It's powerful stuff that's taking place. So with that in mind, some of the significance of the history and the, and the promises that have been fulfilled. Uh, look with me at verses 1 through 4 of our text. In these verses, what we see taking place is the Spirit coming just as Jesus had promised, right? Verses 1 through 4, the disciples have been prayerfully waiting for the Spirit for roughly about 10 days now, because you might remember in the timeline, Jesus spent about 40 days with his disciples before ascending into heaven in a cloud of smoke. And, and now, 10 days later, they've been praying in the upper room together. There's about 120 of them or so together, and, uh, and the Spirit comes. And Luke tells us that when the Spirit comes, he shows up in a really powerful, miraculous, kind of a firework sort of a way, right? He shows up uh, with this powerful display of a mighty rushing wind. Shows up with individual tons of fire sitting on top of everybody's head. That had to have been alarming, maybe. Definitely amazing. Like, I'm thinking if there's a fire on top of my head, I'm going to be... When I see one on Patrick, I'm going to be you know, like, trying to swat the thing out. Um, that individual fire on their head. And on top of that, there's this miraculous thing that takes place where every one of them, the text tells us, began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is a pretty phenomenal day when you think about all the things that are taking place. On that day, what's happening is the Spirit comes just as Jesus has promised. And then you think about the ways that he shows up, the manifestation of the Spirit when he walks into the room, right? I used to watch, I'm sad to say, some of you might like it, I used to watch the, the WWE professional wrestling quotes, right? Athletes, they are. I know they are. I get it. Like when those guys would come in the room, or ladies, like there would always be like fireworks and flame and smoke and loud music and they'd come stomping down the center stage, right? In some way, some sort of fashion, I, when, I, when I read this text, I see, <coughs> I see the Holy Spirit just he's showing up in a powerful way. Definitely gets people's attention. And when he shows up, he shows up with wind, and fire, and the ability to proclaim the gospel in unknown languages. I mean, can you imagine, like, if, we're all just, if we all just stopped right now and started praying for a few days, asking God to help us proclaim the gospel. <coughs> and suddenly, for some reason in Hastings, people from all over the known world were gathered here. And, and you didn't have interpreters, didn't, weren't, weren't sure how you'd even talk to those people. And, and as we're praying, we're asking God, help us to proclaim your gospel to the ends of the earth with people that we don't even know their languages, let alone understand their culture. And then suddenly, Holy Spirit shows up. Not only is there flames and wind, but you start speaking languages that you've never been taught, that, that would be a moment. It would be a really 
powerful moment. All throughout history, um, especially Israel's history, when the Spirit of God would show up, it would show up in these ways. And in fact, if you go back to the passage that Michael read to us this morning as he called us to worship, uh, it was the instance of Elijah on the mountainside, right? And when God shows up, he speaks in that still, quiet voice. And yet there was wind, and there was fire, and there were storms that kind of signified God's presence is coming. So all throughout the history of Israel, uh, the Spirit's presence would have been seen this way. It would have become normal for them. This was normative for Israel to experience. And also, all throughout history, this is fascinating, uh, the Holy Spirit um, would oftentimes be referred to as the Holy Wind or the holy breath of God. In fact, my friend uh, Dale Phillips, who used to pastor the church that was in this building long before we came here, um, has a very creative way of uh, communicating uh, the holy wind or this holy breath of God. He's planning to come and and speak and preach and and share in his own creative way um, in the next couple of months, I think in April. Um, But in reference to that, Um, when you think about the Spirit of God, uh, the Greek words that were used to describe the Spirit in in the Hebrew and the Greek uh, were both words that uh, were used for breath or wind. Um, One of the words is ruah, is the way it's said, and it means wind or breath. Um, And what the Holy Spirit does as the holy wind or the Holy breath is he, he brings light into the darkness, especially at creation, right? And then all throughout human history, brings light into the darkness, does this within our own hearts when we receive brand new hearts. He's, he's literally breathing life into deadness or darkness. Genesis says that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, and then when God spoke, I mean, try speaking without breathing, When God spoke, his breath created all of creation. Also, another place to to think about the Holy Spirit at work is a uh, a story in the book of Ezekiel uh, 37, and it's called the Valley of the Dry Bones. Valley of the Dry Bones, you have a bunch of dead people, even their flesh is now rotted off, and you just got a pile of bones. And God comes into that moment uh, through the prophet Ezekiel, And uh, these dry bones stand up and are given breath, life. They're put back together in a miraculous fashion, and they begin to do what? They begin to prophesy, which is to speak in a miraculous and powerful way of the goodness and the greatness of God. And so this is what the Holy Spirit does. He brings light into the darkness. He gives life to the dead. He, He puts words in the mouths of his servants. That's exactly what's taking place in the text in front of us when you look at it. Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit here in this text is literally being fulfilled in a way that would have been historically obvious to his followers. Those who knew Jesus, those who had followed him, those who were Israelites would have looked at this for the most part and said, oh, that's the Holy Spirit showing up. The second thing I notice in the text is that the gospel is literally being proclaimed to the ends of the earth when you think about it. 
at this moment. Literally being proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Verses 5 through 11, what you see is those unknown languages, as I referenced earlier, the disciples were, were speaking. Uh, those unknown languages are nothing less than the foreign languages, the various foreign languages that are actually all gathered and present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. People from all over the known world. The text says, from every nation under heaven had gathered to celebrate the beginning of the harvest, according to verse 5. And Luke tells us that all these people who had gathered were hearing the mighty acts of God in his own native language, according to verse 6. Of this manifestation, when, when you think about it, this manifestation of the Spirit as He comes and baptizes God's people, and baptism in a, in a very different way, not baptism as in covering, but a baptism as in filling is what's taking place. They're being filled with the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, this manifestation of the Holy Spirit um, didn't, it wasn't manifested in some unintelligible babbling uh, as sometimes or might even oftentimes happen in some of our Pentecostal circles today. Um, I might pause there and just say I'm not trying to be overly critical of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. Um, if you don't know, uh, I often refer to myself as a Reformed Baptocostal. Um, part of that reason is I, theologically I'm, I'm heavily Reformed, Calvinistic in, in, my, in my view. But I'm, but I'm also still very Pentecostal, studied in uh, Pentecostal seminary for a number of years, reached the ordained level there, realized there were some doctrines I couldn't get in line with, and so here I am today a Baptist, I guess a half-Baptist, so I don't know. I'm a mutt. I'm a mutt. I'm a three different streams all put together in one. So when I become, if it sounds like I become critical of other brothers and sisters and their take on a scripture, um, it's, it's not done lightly, and it's not, hopefully it doesn't sound overcritical. Um, just when I look at this text, it seems very obvious what is taking place. This is not some unintelligible babbling that's going on. Um, people from every nation are literally in this passage hearing the disciples, as the text tells us in verse 11, telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. Right? Uh, the word of God here is literally being proclaimed for the very first time to the ends of the earth in fulfillment of Jesus' promises. I love how God puts this together. First he says in Acts 1-8, this is what you're going to do. You're going to proclaim, be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then ten days later, he gives them the opportunity to do exactly that. I mean, they didn't have to travel anywhere other than just back to Jerusalem and then get done praying and, and walk out and, and continue doing what God had called them to do. And, and here they are, all the way to the ends of the earth, hearing the gospel. Very powerful moment. Third thing I notice in the text is the mixed response to the message. Um, the mixed response to the message of the gospel. You look at verses 6 through 7 and 12 and 13, you, you catch this glimpse of how everybody in the crowd responds to hearing the gospel in their own languages, right? You track with me, uh, verse 6 tells us that they were bewildered. Verse 7 tells us that they were amazed and astonished. Verse 12 tells us that they were amazed and perplexed. Verse 13 tells us that some of them mocked the disciples, saying that they were filled with new wine. In other words, these guys are drunk. They've been drinking all night. Now it's the middle of the day, and they're trash. That's what's going on. 
A lot of questions you could be asking here that are fascinating, but at the end of the day, the bottom line um, is that Luke wants us to see that there was a mixed response to the message of the gospel. And not just to the message itself, but to the way it was being proclaimed. The miraculous nature in which it was being proclaimed through men who previously did not know these languages, right? There's a mixed response. And it ranges from bewilderment on the one hand to amazement on the other, from astonishment to perplexity to then outright mocking and unfounded accusations. This is nothing new in the history of God's people. Certainly nothing new. You read history books on the church from Pentecost to the Reformation, and there were insane accusations that took place as the church was growing. One of them, there's a number that I could give you, a number of them that I could give you that are just, that will blow blow your mind, but one of them, um, you know, Christians love to call each other brother and sister. And so oftentimes somebody would walk in with their wife and they would say, uh, this is my sister, Christy. And people would say, what? Brothers and sisters are sleeping with each other. And so that was one of the rumors and accusations that took place in in that period. There there are many others. Um, I'll give you one more. I'll give you one more. This one's shock value, really, but it's it's fascinating to know that it's actually documented and true. Um, You know that that Christians in the earlier ages uh, really cared for the widows and the orphans. They would pick up orphans off the street and they would take them into their homes. Well, rumors started that because Christians talked about a baby that came to save them, and because that uh, baby then grew into a man who said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you get the picture of where this is headed, right? And they would even say, the rumors would go, that for a new initiate to become a Christian, they would have to kill the baby that they were going to eat and drink of. Um, yeah, it's crazy. So, so it's not new. And it didn't stop just after this day. Um, Outright unfounded accusations have always followed uh, the works of God. There's, there's, there's always been, there always will be a mixed response. You have to figure there is an evil entity named Satan who is uh, eternally at war. Well, yeah, eternally. He's at war with God. And uh, those whom he is at work with will stop nowhere in their unfounded accusations. Again, some people are going to be amazed some people are going to be astonished by the power of the gospel. And, and some are going to be saved. Um, there's others who are going to be confused, right? Like we see in the text here. They're going to be bewildered or they're, they're worried or they're perplexed. They're left in darkness. They have yet to come to that place where the veil has lifted from their eyes and they, the, the, they once were blind, they now can see, right? They once were lost, but now they've been found. And in that moment, they're totally open to the fact of, Jesus and and what he has come to do, these great and mighty works of God. So there are some who will receive and some who won't, and those who won't will definitely try to explain things away with wild accusations as they continue in their darkened journey. The Apostle Paul um, kind of alludes to this in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, to those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. So I think that connects really well here. That There there were some in the audience who were being saved, and they were being drawn. And there were others who were still left in darkness, were not being saved, and this whole thing that they were witnessing. 
Um, it was nothing more than some weird thing they saw on TV. And all they could do was try to explain it away with all sorts of unfounded accusations. These guys are drunk. That's what's going on. Uh, could not understand what was taking place. When you take all this and you put it together, <clears throat> again, day of Pentecost, day like no other, right? Uh, day was full of all sorts of historical significance, brought people from all over the known world. Every corner of the earth is present, and they're anticipating the coming harvest. Also a day, as I said, where the promises of God's redemptive, indwelling, empowering presence to move his people as witnesses, that this was all being fulfilled among his people so that the, the entire world could hear the gospel in their own language in a very powerful and miraculous way. It's a pretty big day. And when you read this text, you start wondering, like, what's the main point of application then? Like, I read this. I don't know that I'm supposed to experience this today. Um, I don't see anything like this taking place. Um, what is the main point of application? What, what do we need to believe? What do we need to obey as we look at this? I, I, I think that the main point of application for us today is not necessarily to wait for the Spirit to manifest Himself in us through some spiritual gift, such as speaking in tongues. I, I don't think that's the key. Um, I think the main point of application for us is to ask the Spirit to fill us with His very own presence so that we too might share the message of the gospel with everyone we meet. And in the midst of that, it's to believe and to trust that whenever we do share the gospel obediently, that what God will do is He will bring some to trust in Him. That God Himself has prepared some people to receive what we share with glad and joyful hearts that then lead to salvation. I think that's the main point of application. So you might think about a family member or a gas station clerk, right? Or a grocery store checkout lady or a friend or spouse or maybe the child who does not yet understand the gospel. And let me just say, like, sure, it's good to invite them to come to church gatherings with you. That's great. But that, that, that should be the least that you do. It should be the least that you do. You've got to trust and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and enable you and empower you to share the great and miraculous things that God has done for you so that others may hear that witness that you give so that they might have the opportunity to trust in Jesus too. Now, oftentimes it's easy for us to think like, hey, I'm not... I'm not studied up like the, the pastor on the stage. and There's no excuse for that. You can still study. You don't have to be as studied as I am. All you got to do is read your Bibles, right? Maybe read a good book on evangelism and how to share the gospel. Get some practical pieces in there. Sure, those, those things are all helpful and good. But I can tell you, like I've read hundreds of books about evangelism. There's probably just as many, if not more, hundreds, if not more, practical ways to share the gospel with your friends. And they're not bad. And I can tell you, those tools are worthless if you don't have the Spirit living inside of you. Now, if you're a believer, the truth is, is that the Spirit has taken up residence inside of you. You don't need a special secondary experience outside of salvation for this to take place. Lots of ways that that could be explained. I would just say that's where I land on it. You don't need a special second experience. Although, you can grieve the Spirit with your sin. You can cause distance 
with the Spirit because of your sin. And so there are times that you may need to go through times of refreshment and fasting and prayer, asking God to cleanse you and to, and to like refill you anew with his Spirit. I, I think that's valid. I think you can see that throughout the Scriptures as the Spirit continues to refill his people so that they might be a witness to the gospel of Jesus. As I thought through this this week, and I don't have this in my notes because I think for the most part we would be done here. This is about all I had written. So as I thought and kind of prayed through, most of you are saying hallelujah because we're at 31 minutes, 32 actually. As I thought through this, I I wanted to maybe find a way that would um, help you to feel it a little bit. Um, the oomph of this passage, right? Um, and many of the commentators, when they uh, speak to uh, this passage, they talk about the emptiness that the disciples would have maybe felt. And so uh, if you put yourself in the storyline, in the timeline, they walked with Jesus for at least three years, right? And, and it wasn't like they just met up once or twice a week for some church gatherings. They like to spend every day together and became good friends. Jesus dies on the cross. That's horrifying, right? Their leader dies. They had different expectations. They thought he was going to take over Rome, and he didn't do that. Three days later, he rises from the grave, and that's shocking, right? So you go from one end of the pendulum swing to the other. Man, I lost Jesus to, whoa, Jesus is alive. I don't even know if I have a category for this. And then, and then Jesus spends 40 days with us, and, and he goes, hey, by the way, I'm taking off again. You're like, what? What? <laughs> thought you were going to go sit on the throne in Jerusalem. What's, what's going on? And he goes, no, no, I've got a completely different plan. I'm going to plant my church within a yard of hell, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail. I'm going to plant that church on a rock. That rock is my name. I'm going to give you the spirit. You are the church. You're going to do this. And then he takes off, right? And, and you might remember, they're standing there. They're looking up to heaven. They're like, what in the ever-living heck just took place? Right? And the angels come, and they're like, hey, what are you doing? Get moving. Back to Jerusalem. Go pray. Wait for the Spirit. Most commentators would talk about the emptiness and the loneliness that they probably felt in, in that moment. Wondering, like, boy, what's really going to happen? Like, I don't, what's going to take place? Well, you think about the emptiness that they, they might have felt, <clears throat> and maybe the loneliness. And I, you know, some of, the thing, some of the ways that I think of that is, like, if you've experienced a death in your family, or if you've experienced a really intense betrayal from maybe a spouse or a friend, you know, when you feel that, that kind of emptiness, that lostness, that, that loneliness. And then, and then maybe that relationship gets put back together. Or at some point you come to a place of closure on the death that took place. There's a sense of, of healing, maybe fullness, right? You walk for a season where you're like, there's a piece of me missing. I mean, you don't really know what's wrong, but something's wrong. It's missing. And, and then suddenly, when that all gets put back together, you feel whole again. Uh, this is very similar when you think about that emotional, kind of psychological, if you will, feeling. Um, if you ever led somebody to Jesus, or if you here were led to Jesus at some point in your life, you kind of, you might remember that. Like, people that I've led to the Lord, they always say, and I remember too my own story, but they always say, something changed that day. 
I felt completely different. I look at my life and I don't know if it's altogether different because I'm still like struggling with some things. You know, bad language, I drink too much, smoke pot, whatever it may be, right? I'm trying to figure out how to walk this Jesus thing out. But there's something that takes place that day when you get saved. When, and when you get saved, that's when the Holy Spirit comes and, and lives within you. I mean, the, the way the old evangelist would talk about this is come and we want you to invite Jesus into your heart. The literal picture is you have a heart inside of you before Christ that's dark and it's empty. The only thing that it's full of is all the cruddy sin you've been living in. You're thinking that that's going to do something for you and you know that it's not. You live with that shame and that guilt and that emptiness and that loneliness. That's what's taking place. And then when you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit gives you a brand new heart. It's like he, 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 he like knocks down the old house of your heart. I mean, it's like he erects, builds a brand new home, a brand new heart inside of you. And then he doesn't just go, hey, good job. There's your new house. I'm out. I'm going to go build another house. He's like, I just built that brand new house in there. I'm going to come live inside of that. It, it, it's this whole picture of being one with Jesus when you study the scriptures. It's that, that Jesus, by his spirit, comes to live inside of you. And in that moment, he also places you inside of him where nobody can ever take you away. You never be alone again. There may be distance, maybe dry spells, maybe, maybe seasons where you don't feel God's presence. At times that can be a test from him. Other times it can be because of your own sin. But from that point forward, things are different and you remember that day. My day for me was laying in the middle of the street after getting hit by a truck and God spoke and it radically changed my life. Are there still things in my life that need to go? Yeah, I still live inside of this body of death, and I can't wait for heaven. But here's the thing, in my journey, in your journey, somebody had the guts to come speak that to you. Whether that's a preacher who got on a stage, who's just a normal, average human being who struggles with sin throughout the week and, and weaknesses, or whether that's a friend or a family member who shares the gospel with you courageously. For me, it was my dad. And that day, I'll never forget that day. Different person. That's what's taking place on this day. And really, it's, it's, it's almost, you might look at it this way too, it's a requirement. See, you, you can't come to God and be like, yo, God, I kind of got some of these things together. I want to kind of attach you on like another app on my phone. It's not like you just download God and then you got him on his phone so you can kind of flip over to him every once in a while and check him out on Sundays and Wednesdays. It's more like that moment, he gives you a new heart. And, and, and the way he gives you a new heart is when, when you start with that place where you say, yeah, I'm... I'm empty, and I'm alone. I don't have anything without you. I need you. I think that's the essence of what they were praying. And really, in this segue, as we get into next week even, when you see thousands come to the Lord, what it takes is a posture of humility and repentance and honesty. Say, I don't have it together. And I need God to come and fill me and to radically change me. And here's what I can guarantee you. You posture yourself that way, and God will do amazing, firework-like things in your life. Who knows? <laughs> maybe you will speak in tongues. Um, maybe not. Here's what I do know. You don't have to speak in tongues <laughs> for God to do amazing, miraculous things in and through you. All it takes is that you would submit and surrender to him and say, Hey, I'm lost, I'm alone, and I need you. Come radically change me and then empower me to be your witnesses. One last brief thought. 
when you think again about Peter and his disciples, 50 days, okay? 50 days from, yo, Jesus, I'm going to deny you, and uh, I see you dying there on the cross. I'm afraid for my own backside, so I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going to take off like a coward, right? 50 days from that moment till the moment when they all proclaim the gospel to the ends of the, end, uh, of the world. There's not one of us in here within the sound of my voice that is screwed up so bad that God couldn't use you immediately. Right now. He could save you right now. And then he could begin using you right now to proclaim himself to a lost and dying world. This is why our church exists, really. Um, I think, I think my prayer for us would be that and if you're in that place, you're here this morning, you're hearing this message and you don't know Jesus, and you would come to a place where you recognize your sin, you recognize your brokenness, your helplessness, your, your, your loans, your, your complete aloneness without him. But you come to a place where you'd say, I'm broken, I'm empty, I need Jesus to come and fill me with his spirit and then to use me. If you're here and you're a believer and you're like, man, I've just kind of been distant from God because... Well, I got distracted. I made him into an app on my phone or another thing to do every week. And I want more of God. I'm going to pray that and encourage you to pray that God would do just that. Come and do a refreshing, renewing work inside of you. That in a sense, for you who are not yet believers and praying that the Spirit would come and build a brand new house inside of you and then take up residence there, for those of you that have that brand new house built there for longer than 15 minutes or 15 years or whatever, that maybe the Holy Spirit would come and do a renewing, refreshing work. Maybe deep down inside there needs to be some sweeping taking place, and maybe some fixing up of some windows, uh, maybe some hallways got some clutter, and the Spirit needs to come and do that work. And usually that clutter in our lives looks like sin, plain and simple. And we've either grown cold to the Lord and begun to walk back into simple patterns in our lives um, or just got attracted to the new sin that we didn't even think of before. Those are the two works that I pray God would do in a miraculous way inside of each of us. Amen? Now, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you so much for the historical significance of the day of Pentecost and not only the historical significance but also just the, the powerful um, fulfillment of your promises. Lord, pray for us. Lord, as we ponder and contemplate what we've just heard and what we just studied, and pray, Father, that you would come and, or for any, in the sound of my voice, or in this room that do not know you, God, pray cheaply into that place where they would submit and surrender to you and, and be saved. For any who are here who, who have been walking with you for years and just feel a sense of crustiness, so to speak, and emptiness, I pray, God, that you would fill us up, or that you would then use us to proclaim the message of the gospel to all that we come in contact with. I trust that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.